Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mental Filter. In this episode, we have a really insightful insider look into what it's like to be on the top. In particular, it's with someone who's a member of the clergy, where often we see them from the outside, we don't get to see them from the inside. But I will stress that this is not just about clergy, this is about being in a leadership position where often it's referred to as being lonely. And we had the opportunity to speak with a member of the clergy, and perhaps in the future we'll have members of the clergy from other denominations and other faiths to talk about, well, what is it like to be on the top? How do you manage, how do you navigate all the things that are on your plate, your own mental health, and being in that public position, and all those things. I thought it was really insightful, really transparent. And if you enjoy, and if you get something out of this, please, please take a moment to rate the podcast and whatever you're listening it on, share it, review it. All those things are really what we rely on to help us grow and have more people on and more people listening. This is Mental Filter. everybody to a mental filter where we have the opportunity to talk about interesting things with interesting people all through the lens of mental filter. As you know already, my name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a clinical social worker, own a practice just a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore. And I am very grateful to have co-host for today who is a member of the clergy as you had heard in the introduction. I think this is actually quite the relevant topic, even for someone who's not in clergy, even for someone who's not religious at all, you will find that this is something that can relate to us all. And in my mind, I think is a under-talked about topic. So as always, I like to have my co-hosts introduce themselves. So Rabbi, if you can, please tell everyone who you are. Okay. Thank you so much, Mo, for having me. It's an honor and privilege and pleasure to be here. So my name is Yisrael Motzen. I am from Canada. I lived in Montreal and Toronto. Yes, I play hockey. And if we're lucky, I might just say A at some point. We'll see about that. I have been living in Baltimore for the past 20 years. I came here for Nair Israel Rabbinical College, where I have my ordination, as well as Johns Hopkins University, where I received a master's in counseling. I don't practice counseling, but that is an integral part of my philosophy as a rabbi of a synagogue. And when I'm not in Baltimore with my synagogue, I also work part-time for an organization called the Orthodox Union as uh, an assistant to the EVPs there. So those are the things that keep me busy. I have a wonderful family and I should have mentioned them first. I have a wife and five children and they are the center of my life and everything else revolves around them. Beautiful. And thank you for being here. I was looking forward to this and I want to remind everyone who's listening that you know, Rabbi Motzen might be a rabbi and his congregation may have Jewish congregants, but as you'll see, this topic, it just has to do with being a member you know, of the clergy or actually even just being a member in a leadership, someone who's in a leadership position. So let's just start like with this. If it's possible, what is the job description of someone who's in clergy? 
That's a great question. Uh, so every once in a while, I'll look at my actual real job description and it doesn't actually match up with what rabbis or any clergy person is typically doing. I imagine they probably have used the same text they gave the original rabbi of the synagogue about 70 years ago or so. Um, so what do I actually do? I lead services. So we have daily services over here and I'm helping facilitate the services or leading services, speaking at some of the services. I teach classes from a whole range of levels, a whole range of topics for different populations, a lot of pastoral counseling. So I'm on the front line when there is a crisis, whether it's someone who dies or anything of that nature. Very often people who are religious will reach out to their spiritual leader for guidance, for support. So I'm there before 911 is there sometimes just to be there for the family. Also, thankfully, I get to be there for the good times as well uh, at birth and other momentous and joyous occasions. There's visiting the sick. There's uh, PR. PR is a big part of it. We are a medium-sized synagogue. We have about 275 families or so, a small staff. So I do a lot of the PR for the synagogue, fundraising, party planning to some extent, sometimes even picking up the garbage. So it's a pretty broad description of what I do. So needless to say, you wear many, 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 many hats. And for some people, that could be advantageous and exciting and stimulating. And for others, you know, that could be overwhelming. And this goes beyond being a member of clergy. There's plenty of positions where sort of that unspoken expectation is that you do a bit of everything. Now, from your perspective and being in the position that you are, what do you think are some of those advantages of a do-all and do everything? And what are perhaps some of the disadvantages or challenges of that being part and par parcel of what you do? Yeah, I love this question because it's something which took some time for me to learn how to deal with and appreciate. I think initially it was a stressor, like, well, what is my job? What am I expected to do? And I found myself challenged. Like, it was a little overwhelming at times. And then I tried to reframe it as simplistic and almost cliche as it sounds, but trying to make it into an opportunity. For me, part of what attracted me to this type of job was the fact that it's so multifaceted, that it's, I don't have a specific role. And the truth is what I've found is that that's probably true in most roles, that there are more opportunities for people to do things that fit more naturally with them. And so while job description is X, recognizing with time what my skills were, what I'm able to bring to the organization and build on that and, and focus my primary energy on that, it makes all the other stuff much more enjoyable by figuring out which parts of this whole thing I could really enjoy. And it keeps things exciting, frankly. You know, it, it's just less mon monotonous and I'm able to just uh, activate and actualize different parts of my personality and my interest. There are days when I'm, I'm really tired and I'm not in the headspace to perhaps put together a class or something like that. But guess what? There are all these other amazing things to do. I could put my energy into that at that time and still feel productive. And then at a better place, at a better time, I could come back to the things which take a little bit more mental energy. Wow. Okay. You said it was a little bit of a journey to get there. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. You know, I started this job pretty young without enough coaching and guidance. I learned a lot on my own through a lot of mistakes and certainly a sense of like, wait, why aren't people telling me what to do or give me direction and realizing, no, I have to give myself direction. Uh, that was just the nature of this job. Obviously, every job is radically different, clergy or otherwise. And just as soon as I, not as soon, but as I started to just embrace what was and stop thinking about what it should be, that made it a lot less stressful. That's, yeah, that's a lesson. That's a lesson for life. Now, I know every position in clergy, whatever, whatever faith 
or even something non-denominational is not one size fits all. There is some research into different professions draw certain uh, people with certain uh, characteristics or you know personalities. Do you find that, like what are some of the characteristics that would make a good clergy person? Oof, that's a good question. Interesting question, because I, I don't know if I find that just again, looking at it superficially without obviously having done any of the research. Uh, there's such a wide variety of types of clergy that I've met. There are the academic types, there are the activist types, there are the pastoral types. And I, I find a wide variety of personality types that that end up fitting in, in this type of job. So that's just not my experience that there's a particular type of characteristic that would draw someone. I think most fundamentally, though, one thing that would be a constant, whatever the strength is, is an ability to, to care, to be there for people. There's a lot of that. So, you know, if, if that's something that a person being in any form of clergy, even if it's an academic type of role, I think people turn towards their faith for not just theoretical help, but for practical help. And I think it's just important that person recognize that they are willing and no more than willing, but interested and care to be there for people, because without that, it's going to be an epic failure. Yeah, I mean, if someone doesn't have compassion for people, then yeah, maybe it's time to, to, to look for another position. Right, right. You know, so to build off of what you said a minute ago about there's like an endless amount of hats that a clergy person could wear, you know, anywhere from crisis to officiating a ceremony to, you know, happy occasions, sad occasions and all that. What, and sometimes I imagine that congregants will rely on their clergy person for pretty much everything. What is like the difference between people's, you know, expectations of what their clergy person is there for, or should be available for, or capable of versus the reality you mean after all i mean i love you to death you are human <laughs> yes yes um it's such a good question i think the onus is less so on the congregant and more on the clergy person there's an incredible incredible amount of danger and hopefully we're not veering too off the question but there's an incredible incredible danger in this type of position where there is some sense of being put on a pedestal or anything things of that nature where people are looking towards the clergy person to be a guy to be a leader to be a role model my favorite article of all times is an article in the atlantic it's called power causes brain damage and it, it goes through a number of actual studies that demonstrate that a person's ability to be empathetic actually shifts the longer they're in or, could shift the longer they're in power. And there's actually, you know, demonstrating that there is a significant shift because when people keep on saying yes, or keep on looking up to you, you have less than ability to take those social cues and it's fascinating. And so there is a sense of thinking that you're great. There could be the sense of thinking that you're more capable than you are and therefore getting involved and helping people and things that frankly aren't yours. You know, people turn to me all the time with mental health issues and I, I tell them all the time, I am not a therapist or I'm not a practicing therapist. And what I'm going to do is I'm here to listen. I'm here to hold your hands and I, I want to get you to the best possible help you can have. And I'm going to be there with you every step along the way. So again, I would shift the onus on the person in that position to just not lose sight of who they are and to recognize their own limitations, what they're actually supposed to be doing. You know, I have limited skills. I have limited uh, abilities and it, it's up on me to recognize the reality of who I am and what I'm able to do. And regardless of what people are turning to me towards, people ask, you know, all forms of help and guidance. And I'm 
constantly have to remind them, I'm not in a position to give you that help or help you with that. That's something that you have to figure out. That's something a therapist has to help you with. And so again, I think the onus there is on the person in the position of leadership or authority to really keep track of the reality. Well said. And I think that speaks to a lot of situations where we have to recognize, like you said, what are my strengths? What are my, you know, you want to call it weaknesses and being able to say, it's okay to say either, I don't know, maybe I can try to find out or connect you to someone who does know, or it's okay to say like, I'm not in a position for this and and I'm, I'm a therapist, right? So even though I'm in the therapy business, you know, people can come to me and I'm extremely transparent from day one that this is not something that I feel like I could be helpful with, then I'm not going to see you. Right. right. They still might be, no, it's okay. I'll, you know, and they're paying money to come. It's very easy to, to sort of fall in the trap. So, and then I'm sure people will come to you just for like your opinion on something, mm-hmm. but is it hard sometimes to, to say no? Like what if they ask your opinion on, I don't know, something political or, well, what do you think? I'm going to make this business decision. Sometimes people will go to their clergy person to get their advice on that. So just even an opinion, is it hard sometimes to like say, you know, I recuse myself? <laughs> yeah. It, it, so, you know, it's a little tricky territory because I think it depends on, and this is true, I think across the spectrum within religions, I think in certain denominations or certain segments of different religions, there is this notion that the rabbi, pastor, imam, or whatever is going to be involved in those types of decisions. In my humble opinion, I think that's a tragic mistake. It's it's not the training and it's dangerous. So I, for the most part, I'd like to believe that, that I just constantly tell myself, I have no say in this matter. I will, you know, and it frustrates people. People want, you know, and it's, people want direction. And people want, you know, tell me what to do, Rabbi. And my answer is, you got to figure this out for yourself. And that's, I, I can't do that for you. I can't, I'm not able to, and I can't do that for you. So I personally, frankly, don't find it challenging, but I, I don't feel comfortable giving people that type of direction. But when people are constantly asking these types of things, I could, you know, it, it certainly could present as a challenge. Right. And like you said a minute ago about, there's a lot of talented people who are in the position of clergy, really talented and passionate and skilled. And so when people, especially vulnerable people who you're really, really helping them and they can turn you almost into, you know, godlike, right? Right. And you said like, you have to try to keep yourself grounded of like, what am I capable of? What am I not? Is there anything specific that has helped keep you grounded? Yeah. My wife. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean that sincerely uh, thank God I am very uh, blessed to have a wonderful wonderful amazing spouse and, and relationship and she is my best friend and greatest critic so I share as much as I can you know appropriately with her and uh, you know sometimes I'll ask sometimes she'll just tell me when I need to see things a little differently and that is I think one of the ultimate actually that article I mentioned earlier did mention that one of the most important things that could curb this change in mindset and a person to lose their ability to be empathetic and to to see people for who they are, one of the best, most helpful things is to have a good friend or a spouse who could really say it as it is. So that's incredibly helpful, incredibly, incredibly helpful, you know, to do this. And I think, unfortunately, too many people in clergy are oftentimes all alone and it's dangerous. It's dangerous to be all alone. We all need critique. We all need people that we could answer to. And without that, it's, it's a little risky. Right. It's not helpful to be surrounded by sycophants. 
that's right. That's right. That's right. And it plays into, you know, and I, I try, I'm certainly not, not perfect this, but you know, you, I try catching myself if there are times when I feel like, oh, I really want to do more over here. I want like, what's that feeding into? You know, why do I feel like I need to do more than I should be doing, could be doing? Is this even helpful for them? Like they need to learn to fly on their own. Am I stunting them? And what need is that filling for me? So it could be such an intoxicating field where people are turning to all the time and for everything. And it's crucial that there's some significant checks and balances. Like anyone who in this position doesn't have someone who they could confide in, who could be straight with them. uh, I'd be very nervous. I'd be very, very nervous. Right. And what you just said, I think, is relatable to anyone, whether they're a parent, whether they're a manager, an executive. Like, what's our role in the people that we're serving? So if I have an employee, so is my job to, you know, be very concrete, do task A, complete it, get paid, and that's it. Or is my role trying to help them grow? Am I trying to empower them to become better than they are, maybe move on up, maybe leave so that they can go on to an even better position. Like what is my role? And sometimes accommodating so much is, well, we think that we're helping them, but it's actually stifling them. Like you're saying is because it's not allowing them to fly on their own. Right, right. Like exactly you're saying, it's true for parenting, right? How, how can we make ourselves disappear? That, that, that's the goal, you know, and that's true for on an institutional level. Like earlier today, uh, I was having a conversation with some leadership from local synagogues, and we we're talking about personalities, like whether it's a rabbi or some form of clergy who kind of represent their synagogue or represent their church or whatever it might be. And the value of that, because now you have a, a personality who people are perhaps going to follow and it's good for the institution. And at the same time, you know, the goal of an institution is to be able to create an institution that will live on when you're no longer around, right? Otherwise, you're creating a cult of personality, and that's not very healthy. And it's not healthy psychologically. It's not healthy from a perspective of what you're trying to build. And so, yeah, I love how you're putting it. You know, it's, it's give them wings to fly, but it's also like the focus is how can I best disappear in this situation so that they have the tools that they don't need to come back to me. That's my goal. My goal is not because I don't want to speak to them, but how can I give you the feedback you need or the help you need so that you could do this on your own? I want to disappear. Right. It's so funny you say that because I say that to pretty much every single one of my clients is (laughs) my goal, maybe not the best like business model, but my goal is to get you out of here. You know, maybe I'll see you around in the supermarket, but my goal is to get you out of here. You should be your own therapist. I don't want you to depend on me. That's right. So continue with that direction. You know, speaking to someone, you know, the expression goes that it's lonely at the top. You know, whether it's the top of being a respected, you know, role model of a congregation of some sort, or whether it's someone who's the owner of a business, a CEO, an executive, could be someone who's in the public eye. And yeah, it could be lonely at the top. And then specifically talking about mental health, right? Everyone has mental health. Maybe not everyone has mental illness, but everyone has mental health. Sometimes we forget that. So what's it, if I can ask you, you know, what's it like for a person who's in you know, it's interesting. Clergy is a little bit different is that there's typically, even if there's checks and balances and boards and, and all that stuff, typically in clergy, there's just really like one head clergy person, typically. And so what's it like? What's it like in general? And then and what's it like navigating 
you know, to deal with mental health, a person has to be able to be really vulnerable and share, but I'm in this public position and people are sort of all looking at me, but I also have to deal with my own mental health. Right. Right. No, it's an excellent question. I'm going to focus on it a little bit more from a clergy perspective, because I think there's one important difference. You know, there is literature about obviously burnout in clergy. And one of the things that cause burnout is a sense of uh, that people feel people in clergy feel like they are living two lives. They're putting one foot forward and that's their public face. And there's a personal persona and the discrepancy just gets to us. Like I'm such a faker. I'm such a terrible person. And, and they don't know that and all that. And, and that breeds a sense of loneliness, but also a sense of a, a lot of could potentially lead to a lot of bad things. And, you know, and here to me is where I see the challenge on the one hand to be incredibly authentic so that there isn't that level of discrepancy. And there is a sense of normal, like I strive to connect to people on a real personal level and not on some made up pedestal. And at the same time, at the same time, you know, th there is perhaps an over emphasis on being normal on being authentic to the point that we, as a society, sometimes just embrace who we are, you know, one of, uh, it's a little cutesy, but, but there's a bumper sticker I once saw. It says, don't be yourself, be better. And I thought that's such an important insight because, you know, there's a level of being authentic, but there's also, especially in this, right, all, all of us need to constantly strive to be better than just who we are authentically and to strive and to be, and certainly someone in a, a clergy position, there's an expectation there, but to not lose sight of who you really are and not just internally, but also externally to not, to not be so guarded. So Yes, the friendships and relationships I have with my congregants who are the people I see more than anyone else, they're going to be, by definition, they're going to be different. And that's going to be true about a CEO of a company. And that's going to be true about anyone in any leadership position where there is some form of a hierarchy. They know that there, there's going to be some difference, what deference or whatever it's going to be. So as much of you that could be shared, as much of you that could be real um, with other person, I think just alleviate some of that loneliness. I think that's one crucial piece. So I think even with the people that you're surrounded by, there still could be a sense of allowing people in without maybe oversharing without, without being too vulnerable, but allowing people in so you can have authentic relationships. And in addition to that, making sure that you have other social circles, whether that's fellow clergy, whether it's people who have no relationship to clergy or to whatever profession you're in that you could connect to completely independent of what you're doing, where you could, so to speak, let your hair down and just be real. That's crucial. We all need some social circle. I think that's just a crucial piece of it. So even if in one setting, you don't have that ability to be as, again, I don't like the word authentic, but you're not able to connect to people in the same way. It's important to find those opportunities. And I strive to find those opportunities. I get together with colleagues from time to time. I try to, you know, and again, I thank God, I feel very privileged. I have my wife where I could spend that time with. And those things are really, really meaningful to keep us grounded. Thank you. Is there some like secret specialized therapist that focuses on clergy member that meet clandestinely that a speak at a speakeasy with a password that they can they can really just you know completely let their guard down and share everything so it's funny so i first i don't know of one i'm sure there are there should be if there are it's a great well you niche. definitely can admit it on a public podcast <laughs> but you know what one of the things you know i do have a group of colleagues where again i'm not gonna this is not i wouldn't call this 
group therapy because it's kind of informal, but it's a place and it's a group of people where we could just speak very candidly about what's going on, struggles, this and that. And it's tremendous. Again, you know, it's not a need to complain. I feel incredibly privileged to be in a position where I get paid to help people and do things which I think are meaningful. Like that's incredible. But yeah, letting off some of that steam, letting off some of that tension with a small group of, of colleagues is crucial. And there are organizations which actually have helped facilitate putting together groups of colleagues within, you know, the Orthodox rabbi world, uh, putting these colleagues together to create those places with this intention, the recognition that, like you said, it's lonely on the top. Um, People are distant. Sometimes people are in places where they don't have so many like-minded people at all. And so creating, facilitating the creation of groups is something which in the Orthodox world is in the past couple of years has really picked up where major organizations have taken steps to do so to strengthen their rabbinic leadership. That's beautiful. I think that's really, really amazing. If someone's listening, who knows that I'm sure there's got to be in other denominations and other faiths that they do something like this, please share with us. I'd be happy to, you know, share it so that people who could benefit from it benefit. I mean, there's all sorts of variations of this, of creating groups of like-minded people who like, you know, I can understand you and you can understand me. And there's just like a certain, you know, ability to, you know, let your hair down whether it's a group of executives or whether it's a group of people struggling with something specific, like they just get each other. They don't have to pretend they don't have to be on. And I think that that should almost be like a requirement. <laughs> right. Think, Agreed. Uh, Agreed. It's, it's that important. And I like what you said earlier, you're talking about being genuine. I find, I find uh, authentic. I should say, I, I find that sometimes people, there's a little bit of a trap because they equate being authentic with complacency. Being authentic, being real with myself, being true to myself, being accepting of who I am and where I am in this very moment does not equate complacency. So people sort of go in like both directions. They'll be like, well, I'm gonna be always critical of myself Because if I let up even a drop of that, then I'm going to somehow turn into a couch potato and never do anything in my life again. Or some people, anything in extreme is is not helpful. Or go to the other extreme, which is like, okay, world, I'm good. I'm just going to sit here and I am good. And, you know, like, is that really helping you also? I don't think so. And they don't, one doesn't have to equal the other. I can be accepting and authentic. And then I can also be very growth minded and want to constantly grow and keep on being better. So I I appreciate what you're saying. I want to ask an additional question on what you said about, you know, to the best of your ability of being in a, you know, a, a position of leadership, a position that people look up to and being a role model. So how do you strike that balance? Because whether it's fair or not, or logical or not, People look at a leader, they want to be inspired by our leaders, and maybe they set them up to be infallible, and that's not fair, and that's not accurate, and that's not realistic, but they still want it. They want their leaders to really inspire them and be a role model. So how do you strike the balance where, well, I want to inspire them. On one hand, I want to show them my best self to try to show them, but on the other hand, I want to be this real, like, I'm human. There's a a value in showing being fallible, but there's also potentially a risk if I like overshare and if I'm like, quote, like, I don't know, too fallible if there's such a thing, 
then I'm just sort of like, I'm dumping and I'm like, if I go overboard and say, oh yeah, we're in this together and I'm, you know, this is all, you know, this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, where I'm struggling with this and this and this and this, whether it's mental health or something else, I don't know that that's going to strike like a whole bunch of confidence in our, whether it's our employees or our kids or our congregants. I know this is a very long-winded question. Anyone who's <laughs> listened to me before knows that. So I'm glad you're still here. How do you strike the balance because there is an inspiring part of being vulnerable Mm -hmm. but then there's a tipping point where i'm just like sharing all my vulnerabilities and i struggle with this and this and this and this and this and this and this like people i think i'm assuming so i don't want that people want their leaders to to inspire them more and, and how do you strike that balance right Okay, so let me try to do justice to this very important question. So I think there's this another piece before the sharing, being vulnerable and helping people that way. And that is that, frankly, people are more interested when people share about themselves. You know, there's a uh, Simpsons episode, I'm going to date myself, I suppose, where Homer was teaching some college class and night school to adults and I don't know how he got the job and he's teaching and it's boring and everyone hates it. And then he starts sharing a little bit about his personal life and all of a sudden everyone's glued. And then he continues to do so and his, his class becomes the most popular class in, uh, you know, in the college or whatever it is. And, and, you know, and so obviously there's a sense of, well, I'm sure people just like a story and maybe sometimes even like a story more when it's someone that, uh, you know, especially a vulnerable story when it's coming from someone who, like you said, is supposed to be put on this pedestal. So there's that, which is just, you know, a reminder to people that the sense of it, which is currently the trend, the trend is you have to personalize everything. You know, everything is about me. I was recently in touch with a certain publication, like a significant newspaper about op-eds. And they say they only take op-eds if it's a personal piece. Like it has to be I statements. They don't take thought pieces that are not I statements, which is crazy. But that's our culture. Our culture is one where it has to be, you know, personal. And again, people respond to that, but there's a certain danger in that in and of itself, which I think has to be recognized. But moving beyond that, in terms of like finding that balance between being vulnerable and and being inspirational, I think to me, the question I try asking myself before I speak, before I post is, is this in my assessment going to move people forward? That's the question I try to ask myself. I probably at times misjudge but, you know, the, the question is, yes, people will relate to certain vulnerability, but if it's going to therefore tell people, okay, and therefore it's okay to do X, Y, Z without moving forward, then what have I done? I've just shared, maybe it's cathartic, I don't know, but I, I haven't really moved the ball forward. My job as a clergy person, as a rabbi, is to, you know, twofold. I like, you know, it's not my own line. Some, someone once framed it as making the uncomfortable comfortable and the comfortable uncomfortable. So there's the first part, which is making the people who are vulnerable and people who are in need, giving them a sense of comfort. But then there's also the sense of people who are complacent in life in some way about whatever it is. How am I moving the needle a tiny bit forward in some way or trying to move the needle a tiny bit forward? So I think the perfect calibration, I have no idea. I don't have a system for that. But the the question I try to ask myself before any output is, is this, in my estimation, moving people higher, forward, better? Or am I giving them something that's going to cause them to be more comfortable not doing one of those things? So am I perfect in making that assessment? I'm not sure, but that's the frame that I try to look at it through. Beautiful. So that's intentional. In essence, you're making it more about them than about you. That's what it should be, right? <laughs> I, I, would, I would hope. 
I would. <laughs> My pet peeve is that, you know, again, this goes kind of goes back to the last comments, and that is that, you know, Maslow's uh, what hierarchy of needs, right? At the top, it's self-actualization, right? And it's basically, it's about the self from the framework that I come from, the tradition that I'm a part of, sees the highest level as a healthy form of self-negation, not self-actualization. You know, it's all of what we've been talking about. You know, the person at the top is not to promote themselves. It's to be able to do enough so that they could subsequently pull back. It's that they could assist and, and provide so that they could pull back. That's the goal. That's ultimately the goal. So yeah, the question of, is this helping other people? That that's like, should be so obvious because that's our role. Our role is, it's not about me. It's not about the self-promotion or it shouldn't be about me. Even if at times that's at play, my, at least my stated goal. And the one that I need to at least answer to, to myself is, is this helping others, moving them forward? That's it. That's the purpose of life. And that's, I'd like to believe the purpose of what I'm trying to do in my, in my role. Agreed. Couldn't agree more. And to really like make a, might be a long parallel, but I think there's a parallel even in, in just from a business perspective and there's lots of business owners out there and it's a challenge for business owners. Sometimes when you're making a decision, is this decision good for my business or is this decision good for me? Now we're humans and we have emotions and let's say I want to do something, get something, go somewhere. And if I want to grow my business, is this good for my business? Is this good for my staff? Is, or is it good for me? Right. And I think that's a question that everyone should really be asking themselves. Yeah. It's a hard, and it's a hard question to answer. It is hard to say. We have blind spots. I mean, this is, this is, yeah, it's very challenging, but starting with asking the question is certainly where it starts. What's it like being the container for so much? I'm feeling it right now. You asked the question. Thanks. <laughs> um, it's a lot. You know, it's a lot at times. It certainly is a lot. It's an honor at the same time. It's an honor that I'm able to be there for people. It's hard and it should be hard. You know, the day that, you know, there are times where I just, I'll hear something or I'll be somewhere. Sometimes you're, you're on call, so to speak. You have to be there during a terribly difficult time or a terribly difficult conversation. And then after that conversation or after I leave the house, I will take a moment in my car and experience those emotions. Like it's, you know, to be there with people, to hear the things from people, it, it could weigh very heavily and it's okay for it to weigh heavily. You know, we need to be able to feel for other people. And I think the day that I, you know, I always tell my wife that, you know, the day that I'm not in some way broken and for a few, at a funeral, you know, for someone's passing. And obviously there are differences between someone who lived, you know, to 90 plus years and someone where it's a tragic death. Obviously there's going to be that discrepancy, but if it's just callous, if it's just business as usual, it's time that I leave the profession. Like, I'm like, you know, you, you got to tell me when to leave. Like if, if that happens, if you see that, like pull me out, like I'm done. You know, so, so it's a lot. It's a lot. I try to be real to those emotions, not at the time. My role at, while I'm being there for someone is not to be the one crying, not to be the one mourning, but I do mourn and I do cry. You know, it's certainly a part of the experience and trying to find a way to allow for that in a healthy fashion. And also to remind myself, like, it's incredibly, you know, I feel once again, very honored that I could be there for people. Maybe honor is not the right word. It's just special to be able to be there for people at those times. And that's something which I find very heartening and uplifting. To continue with that, you know, part of being a container is hearing a, a lot of stuff like, you know, behind the curtain of humanity. What helps remind you that there's good in the world? <sighs> I see good all the time. 
I see good all the time. I feel bad for you therapists, you know? <laughs> I get the whole life cycle, top to bottom, the good and the bad. I wish people would call me, you know, if everyone calls all the times that bad things happen, they forget to tell me when, you know, the sick person got healed. I'm like, why didn't you tell me that? Like a year ago. But for the most part, I see people at their finest. And specifically, while people are challenged and pushed and pulled, sometimes I'm just blown away by the good that I see. So I don't struggle with that. I, I, I see endlessly so much good and so much positive. And because I'm kind of welcomed into that space, um, on the contrary, I, I, I see endless good and that I find very hard to think. Okay. That's wonderful. I think it's also, you know, the frame of mind of sort of how we're filtering and, and viewing the world. You know, sometimes especially if you're in a certain job where you get to see one, you know, things that are sort of one-sided, you might have to intentionally look for some of those things or recognize those things. And there's also a little bit of like a confirmation bias, where if I'm sort of assuming that I'm scanning for that, I'm looking for that and I'm confirming all the negativity that's, oh, this is bad. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. You know, and it, it could be fairly easy to do that. You need know, to turn on the news and you can like hear this and that and this and that and this and that. It, it's easy to get you know, your focus to be on one side. So I think it's also could be intentional also. That's very fair. That's very fair. Yeah. Now, is there, I don't know if you can share this, but is there any particular situations that you had to deal with where at the time were just so completely challenging and overwhelming and in hindsight, it was like a real moment of growth, but it was like, whoa, like I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> And it really it happens, like, more, it happens more often than like than I like to share. Um, I can't think of any particular situation where I could share the yeah, details. Okay, I but okay. but but I think to that question, I think I do want to globalize the question a little bit, if I may. I know it's not as exciting. <laughs> it's giving the actual details. But in those situations, I've learned and been forced to learn to reach out to those people who are qualified. And, and thankfully, there are many amazing people who are are. And again, this goes back to what you know you just asked before. There are some amazing people there who are don't have the time, but somehow have the time to help out for all forms, all sorts of things. And I've received incredible amounts of support from different people. So, you know, when the alarm goes off, like this is, to I'm totally out of my depth, which happens more, you know, happens all the time. So, you know, knowing who to reach out to or knowing people who could connect me to the right people has been extremely helpful in dealing with those situations. And again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, just like know your limitations, know what you can do, know what you can't do. And, and there are tons of good people out there who can help guide you. So in, in some ways, two-part question here. There's, you know, people, clergy, and each denomination maybe has slight variations. There's some cliche associations with them. And so my first question would be is, is like, what would you want to educate people as far as, you know, some, sometimes clergy people get a bad rap and people assume things about them. What have you found are some of those things and what would you want to educate people on? And then, you know, I'll get to the second question after. First answer that one. Sure. So at least I'm going to speak for my denomination. Ortho, you know, or, as an Orthodox Jew, there is sometimes a, an assumption of I can't share this with my rabbi. You know, I'll get calls sometimes from people from a different congregation who are calling me because they can't speak to their rabbi. Like, why are we having this conversation? Call your own rabbi. He's not going to understand. And my answer is, let's see what happens. If he doesn't, feel free to call me back. But, but there is this sense of aloofness that it might be chalked up to a sense of not being able to be compassionate enough, not fully understanding the depth of human experience and, you know, and thinking like, how could they possibly relate to me in this terrible situation? I, I would love for people to 
give their own rabbi a chance. You know, maybe the rabbi is not as approachable, doesn't smile enough, whatever it might be. But, but if, again, if they're in the profession, there's a good chance they really, really, really care and not to assume that they are so aloof or so lacking an understanding of what you're going through, even if it seems like it's a totally different world. So the message is give your clergy person a chance. Yep. Sounds like a good bumper sticker. <laughs> so now like the second related question is, is a lot of people out there might be familiar with the term being a PK. You know what PK is? I'm not familiar. Help me out here. <laughs> so a PK, PK is a pastor's kid. And it, it's a term sort of used, you know, for someone whose parent or parents are part of the clergy, pastor, mm-hmm. uh, you know, imam, rabbi, whatever it is. And it sort of comes as like, oh, you're a PK. And it comes with like its sort of unique set of challenges, again, depending on the denomination, what kind of expectations, and you're sort of part of this, like, you know, image of the clergy person's family, and they, people assume things about you, or they try to, like, push your buttons because you're the kid of the clergy person. So using that to talk about being in such a leadership and public position, and it being a clergy position, what kind of impact does that have on family life? Right. So, so the good thing for me is that I have some insight because I am a PK. Uh, my dad, my father was a cantor, is a cantor. Uh, so it's in the Orthodox world that is probably less front facing than the rabbi in many respects. So the expectations are down a tiny bit of a notch, but there certainly was a sense of a public person and certain expectations because of it. And, and I certainly remember as a child being challenged, like, you know, having those challenges, meaning the expectation was I was going to be in services the entire time, despite the fact that I was, you know, age X and all my friends were out running around in the hallway and being a little bit annoyed at some of those things. Uh, thankfully, there are also perks that, that we experienced as a family because of it. And that's something that we as parents try to lean into very, very, very much. I try to give my kids all the perks and highlight as much as I can all the perks of clergy and also being incredibly sensitive, as sensitive as possible. You know, for example, I, I just as some, some examples, like, you know, some of my children don't like coming to services at all. They don't come to synagogue. So I don't push it. And like, I, I feel like I'm the last person who should be pushing it. I believe it's important for them and at the right time, but the last thing they need is because I'm sure part of it is my own ego and part of it is my own need to this be appropriate if my kids were, you know, at, at synagogue. And, you know, so I, knowing that, even if I, in my head, I'm like, no, they should come because it's the right thing. But knowing that I'm sure there's a part of it was just me and my ego and my kids for sure seeing it because they'll see through everything. I, I have to check myself a lot. So this is a, the fear, a, a tremendous fear of mine. And, and again, and I try to use it to the good is this a, a recognition that there is this pressure. They could feel this pressure. My wife's a therapist. There's also, I don't know if they, there's a term for it, but there's certainly this notion that therapist children, I'm sorry, Shmuel, also have this notion that for whatever reason, whether it's expectations or otherwise, that sometimes the children you know, feel a certain pressure. And so we try to be very sensitive to it. And so I try to just be real to what my family needs. So in, for some clergy, they're having guests, they're open house all the time. We actually learned over COVID that my kids kind of really liked a quiet weekend with us without tons of guests. Fascinating, right? Go figure. Um, which we should have realized right away, but we didn't. And so, you know, since then, we've been much more cognizant of, okay, we'll have a week with a lot of guests and a quiet week. And 
And we already were doing some of that, but we went even further. I'm here for the long game. I want my kids to succeed. I want to succeed. And so just really being attuned to what their needs are, trying to highlight for them what the perks are, because there are perks. There really are perks uh, for them and trying to highlight that to them. And some level, and I think the last piece really is some level of boundaries in terms of the time that I spend with my family. It's something I could always grow on, grow with, you know, clergy, unfortunately, for better, for worse, not for better, for worse, but quite often don't have designated hours. I'm, I'm pretty available. I'm pretty accessible, but I try to have some level of boundaries in terms of when I'm available, when I'm not available, when even if I am available, I simply on principle won't respond like after a certain hour of the evening. I'm not responding to your text message. I'm not responding to your call just because unless it's an emergency, why are you calling me past this time? So just having those personal boundaries. And then my kids know that there are these boundaries, that there are these times when the phone will not be taken out, even if it's buzzing off the hook. So that's the third part, which, and I'll just end with this. It's a long answer. Um, When it comes to those boundaries, if they're done well, and I have a lot of room for improvements over there, a lot of room for improvements, but when it is done well, when they see you saying, actively, yes, your job is so busy. And yes, people are, are pushing to reach out or whatever it is. And despite that, you are saying, but I choose you, my child, my spouse, whatever it is, that statement is incredibly powerful. And a, a statement that could only be made because of the stress, because of the pushes. So, uh, you know, uh, there, there's an opportunity there, an incredible opportunity there to say, you know, to really show the children or this or one spouse or whomever it may be, how important they really are. That's fantastic. And you're right, and, and have done well also setting the boundaries with other people. I mean, I found that if you do it sensitively, they respect that. They very, very much respect that. Yeah. You know, there will be people who aren't happy no matter what, <laughs> but uh, for the most part, you know, they respect that. I know we only have a, we only have a couple more minutes here. I can go on for, for hours about this. What do you think you would be doing if you weren't in the clergy? Oof, that's a really good question. I don't even have a clue. Uh, I have a lot of interest, which is what attracted me to the clergy. I like the PR side of it. I like the therapy side of it. I like the speaking. I like the teaching. You wouldn't, be, like playing, the... You wouldn't be playing for the Habs? <laughs> I wish. I gave up on that dream at 13. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would play, be playing more hockey for fun. Right now, my wife gets a little more nervous that I'm going to hurt my hand and not be able to type. So I stay off my skates. These days, I, I jog instead, which parenthetically is a good thing to do, just to keep, keep your mind in a good place. Okay, so it could be a lot of things. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's not the, the most uh, concrete answer. No problem. No problem. Now, being in a position such as yours, I can imagine, you can tell me otherwise, I can imagine that it could, a person could fall into the numbers game. It's sort of like counting, especially if there's other congregations in the area, you know, and in any city, there's multiple parishes, there's multiple churches, synagogues, temples, et cetera, et cetera. And it could, you know, you get up there to speak or to run a service and like, oh, we're full, you know, there's 200 people or whatever it is. How do you manage not getting too stuck into, okay, well, we're big and we're full and we're this and we're that and focus on what's like, you know, really important. Yeah, that is an amazing question. You know, we constantly as a synagogue board and, you know, the leadership of the synagogue and myself, we we come back to that idea often. There are no metrics to measure if we're doing a good job. You know, what is us doing a good job? You know, for in therapy, if you're doing a really good job, like we spoke about before, maybe they're not coming back in the religious life. They're there for the good. They're there for the bad. They're there all the time. So there's no graduation. And if we simply get lost in the numbers of attendance, 
then that's clearly a very superficial indicator. You know, we're not populist. My job is not to make everyone happy. So really we're looking at some level of growth, level of connection in theory, which is highly subjective, you know, in theory, sending out some form of a poll would be okay. It would be a little different and, and interesting, but there really are no good metrics. And so it's a constant toggle. At the same time, look, at the same time, there is a business element. I, I would not be telling the truth if I'd say there isn't a business element. We do have to have a certain amount of people in the synagogue to be able to survive. I do have to, I, as I mentioned earlier, I fundraise as well, you know, on a little bit. So, you know, there are measurable metrics which are necessary. And at the same time, how do I not lose sight of what's really important? And what's really important is oftentimes the person who may be the most challenging, who maybe I'll see the least quote unquote change or growth with, but they're going to be in need of what the synagogue has to offer more than anyone else. And how could we do that better? And I think during COVID, this became much more apparent to me, like in terms of what we're doing, our synagogue was closed for a couple of months and, you know, trying to think about like, what are we providing? How are we helping? And, uh, you know, for me, it was, it was those, it was phone conversations, short conversations, text messages, just a sense of connection. You can't measure that, but I feel pretty confident that most of the people that we interacted together, that was priceless. That ability to be connected to someone, especially at a time of vulnerability and need is amazing and just not losing sight of that. So I think one of the themes that you've mentioned a couple of times is a sense of nuance and balance. And so it's balanced because it's not all that you, it is, there is an element of, we have to keep the lights on and, and paying the, the electricity bill over here. But at the same time, constantly reminding ourselves, okay, please don't let that take over. I need to also focus on what's really important. And it's the stuff that's most important is the least glamorous. Oftentimes is the stuff you cannot even tell anyone about, but that's what you're there for. Right. Qualitative versus quantitative. Yeah. Yeah. One, one final question here. Sure. If you were to be giving one or two thoughts, pieces of advice to someone who's getting into clergy or someone who's on the path to being in a clergy position or a leadership position. So whether you're talking to your younger self, as the cliche question goes, or just someone who they don't know what's coming and they're going to be in a position of clergy, position of leadership, what would be some things that you would like to tell them? I would tell them to be open to changing their minds on anything and everything. You know, obviously if you're in this position, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld who once said, like, by definition, anyone running for president is by definition, like a narcissist. Okay. That's not a political statement, right? In other words, you think you're capable of running the entire free world, like what's wrong with you? So obviously this is a little bit smaller of a scale, but the sense that you feel like you have the right, the ability, the talents to be telling other people what to do. So obviously there's some level that something that needs to be curbed a little bit, I really believe so. So there's a sense of, I am right. I know what other people should be doing and listening to. And that's great. That confidence is great, but don't allow the confidence to get in the way of all the incredible lessons. You're, we're all going to learn the hard way of all the things that we're wrong about. So yeah, it's great that you feel that way, but be open to the fact that you're probably also wrong about most of the things you believe in, which goes together with the second piece. And that is a great sense of humility. Uh, humility is something which, you know, constantly working on and the key to doing this job and frankly most of life well uh, listening hearing other people and, and being open to recognizing when you're wrong and when it's time to change and that all stems from a, a deep sense of humility that to me is the most important thing that any young person going into any job frankly needs to think about beautiful 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 thank you very very much this was great thank you so much it was a pleasure to be here i really appreciate you having me 